This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On Sunday night, June 7th, 2015, the 17-year-old Lisa Holm was about to go home from her summer job at a cafe in Kinnekulle, a town in the middle of Sweden. She was going to drive her scooter home, a trip that is supposed to take about an hour. But she never made it to her house, and her parents report her missing that same night. Her scooter is found outside her workplace, with the keys still in the ignition. This started one of the largest search efforts in the history of the volunteer organization, Missing People. This is Lisa's story. Hi, and welcome to episode 28 of True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. Or maybe I should say, hej och välkommen. That's hi and welcome in Swedish. I have a listener that reached out to me and wanted to know how to say hi in Swedish. And it's hej. That's easy, right? Today's case is researched and written by Johanna Ulstol Friberg. Thank you so much for helping me out, Johanna. The case I'm covering today is a case that really affected everyone in Sweden in 2015. In every workplace, every home, on the streets, in the stores, everywhere, people talked about the missing girl and what might have happened to her. About a thousand volunteers in the organization Missing People searched for Lisa. But let's start from the beginning. Lisa Holm was a beautiful 17-year-old girl who lived in a town called Skövde with her parents and an older sister. She had blue eyes and long blonde hair. According to her friends, she always had a smile on her face and she brought a lot of positive energy into a room. She was very kind and cared about other people. Lisa loved to travel, and she dreamed of moving to Australia to study to become an architect. In her room, she had a map of the world on the wall. Lisa put a pin in every country that she had ever been to. In June of 2015, Lisa was about to finish her first year in a new school called Västerhöjdgymnasiet in Skövde. She studied social sciences there. If you compare this to the US, she would have been a sophomore in high school. 
About a month before she goes missing, she had landed her first real job at a cafe in the nearby town, Blomberg. Her manager, and also the owner of the cafe, was a woman named Lena Svedung. You're going to hear more about her later in this episode. Lisa worked Saturdays and Sundays, and during the first month, her parents had given her a ride back and forth in their car. But Lisa had other plans. Ever since she got her scooter driver's license a year before, she had longed for this exact situation. She now had her own job and the wheels to drive her there, all by herself. As I said, Lisa's parents drove her to work every weekend. And before they agreed that Lisa could ride her scooter to work, They drove the road several times together, picking out smaller roads for Lisa to ride on with her scooter to stay out of the hardest traffic. Lisa was 17 and still had one year left until she could get her driver's license and go by car. But she was trying to be more and more independent and really wanted to ride her scooter to and from work even though she knew it took her about an hour each way. And then the day finally comes when she's going to get to and from work on her own for the very first time. It's Sunday, June 7th, 2015, and Lisa left her house in the morning to go to work at the cafe. At about noon, Lisa's parents show up to have something to eat and also check on their daughter. Lisa wasn't too happy about this. She was busy and didn't really want her parents to hang around her workplace. Her father looked at her as he walked towards the counter, and he couldn't have been more proud. His daughter was working, making her own money, and about to get her very first paycheck. He was so happy for her. They dropped some stuff off for Lisa, and they talked a bit. Lisa took her lunch break and ate a soup while she talked to her parents. The cafe was busy, a lot of people who wanted to fika, and Lisa soon had to go back to work. Lisa and her co-workers, Rebecca, Lova, and Sara, were very busy that afternoon, but somewhere after four or five in the afternoon, the place quieted down a bit. The four girls started to clean up and get ready to close at 6 p.m. The youngest girl, Sara, who was only 15, also drove a scooter to and from work, and she left about 5 or 10 minutes before the others. Lisa, Rebecca and Lova closed up at about 6.15 p.m. This is what Rebecca later said to the police. It was quiet after four that afternoon, and we were able to close and be all done cleaning up by 6.15. We all left together, but I had my car and I was going to give Lova a ride to Skara. And Lisa was going to drive her scooter home for the first time. I saw Lisa walk to the front of the building where her scooter was parked in the far end corner. There were no other people but us as far as I could see. Then me and Lova drove off. Lisa was now alone by the cafe. She was wearing a pair of jeans and a shirt, but it was very windy and she had a long drive ahead of her. 
So she pulled on a pair of large sweatpants on top of her jeans and put on her pink jacket, a windstopper. She took her phone out and saw a text from her father, Stefan, sent around six o'clock. He asked her when she was leaving the cafe. Lisa replied with only one word. Now, at 6.23 p.m. Her father was satisfied with that answer and quickly calculated that he should be home at about 7.30 at latest. Three minutes after the text message was sent, Lisa's phone called him. He clicked the green button on his iPhone and answered, Hello? Slightly surprised because he thought Lisa was on her way by now. He didn't get a reply to his hello. Instead, he could hear the muffled sound of at least two voices in the background. He later said to the police that it sounded like two people talking to each other in a pleasant manner. After some time, he could hear someone uttering the words, Deklart, in Swedish. That means, it's done. This was as an answer to what someone else was saying. After that, there's a sound of a car door closing. He yells hello a couple of times without getting an answer. And he hangs up because he realizes that Lisa is not aware of the fact that she had called him. The police later established that Lisa's phone must have accidentally made that phone call to the last person she texted. It's also established that Lisa probably sent the text to her father just before they left the cafe. And that the pocket dial happened as the girls were saying their goodbyes outside. One hour passed and it was now 7.30pm and Lisa's parents expected her to be showing up any minute now. But there was no sign of Lisa. They waited for about another five minutes. And then they called her phone, but there was no answer. Her mother got very worried right away. But her father tried to calm his wife down. But the mother insisted that they had to go look for her. Something might have happened. So he got in his car and started to drive the same way Lisa was expected to drive home. It took him 40 minutes by car. And he looked in every ditch and by the side of the road in case she had been in an accident or something. For every kilometer he traveled, his worry and anxiety increased. By the time he got to the cafe, he was almost hysterical. But then he noticed Lisa's scooter still parked outside the building. And he felt so relieved. He thought to himself, Thank God she hasn't left yet. He parked the car and got out. Lisa's scooter had the keys in the ignition, and her helmet was not hanging on the handlebar. Lisa would never leave her scooter unattended like that, and that's when it hit him, like a punch in the stomach. Something must have happened to her.
As Lisas father drove off in his car, her mother made a phone call to Lisas manager, Lena, to ask if she knew if anything had happened to Lisa. Lena said she had called the girls before six and that everything had seemed fine. When they hung up, Lena immediately went out to her car and drove off to the cafe. While driving, she called the nearest neighbors and asked them to come and help look for Lisa. They in turn also called their friends and by the time Lena got to the cafe, there were five people, including Lisa's father, standing there waiting. They looked everywhere in the surrounding area, and they even checked the timetable for the bus. There were still a remote chance that Lisa could have decided to take the bus home, and her phone ran out of battery. Lisa's mother and older sister went to the bus stop in Skara and waited for the bus to arrive. When it stopped and left without Lisa getting off, they immediately called the police. It was now 9.47pm on Sunday night. The police understood the seriousness of the situation right away and opened an investigation of a possible abduction that same night. They sent several police patrols with search dogs to Blomberg and they visited all the houses in the neighborhood to ask if anyone had seen Lisa or anything suspicious in the neighborhood. In one of the nearby houses, a dazed man who only spoke English opened the door. He said he was at the grocery store at about 8 o'clock and he hadn't seen Lisa. Lisa's friends created a hashtag, Hitta Lisa Holm. Let's find Lisa Holm. And it quickly spread on social media by thousands of people. As the sun rose on Monday morning, Lisa was still missing. The police alerted the public about her disappearance about the same time as a man from the search party found a motorcycle glove in the red barn that was across the street from the cafe. They brought the glove to Lisa's parents and they confirmed that it belonged to Lisa. To the police, this was just another sign that there was an ongoing kidnapping and they added even more resources to the case. On Tuesday, June 9th, two days after Lisa's disappearance, her parents gave their consent to publish her picture in the news. The case quickly became headline news and more people joined the search party. That same day, they found a black cell phone case, a receipt, a ticket, and a broken phone display lying on a gravel road south of the cafe. The man who picked up the objects was being broadcast live on the internet by online newspaper as he handed the items over to the police. Further down the same gravel road, they found more pieces of a cell phone. They also found Lisa's visa card and more receipts that belonged to her. No one knew where Lisa was, but finding her belongings spread out all over the area was not a good sign. 
At the same time all of this was going on, the police checked Lisa's phone records and talked to her friends and family. There was nothing about her personal life that raised suspicion. The police also checked which customers had been to the cafe on Sunday and Saturday, and they took DNA samples from everyone living in Blomberg, including the family who only spoke English. As the case of the missing Lisa hit the media, people started contacting the police about their observations. One woman called in to say that she had been out running in the area near the cafe on Saturday night, the day before Lisa went missing. She had been approached and stopped by a man standing next to his car by the side of the road. He only spoke English and he seemed very sweaty and stressed out. He wanted to know where he could find a town she had never heard about and asked if she could point it out on a map for him. She opened Google Maps on her phone and showed him, but he insisted that she should come over to his car and show him on his map that he had there. She got a weird feeling about this guy and she decided not to follow him to his car. She just said goodbye, I have to go, and she kept running. She told the police that the man reminded her of one of the workers who did construction work in the barn across the street from the cafe. On Wednesday morning, Lisa's father Stefan and his friends were out by the cafe again, looking for Lisa. He imagined her sitting alone somewhere, being cold and scared, and he was not about to give up on her. As he was walking south along the same gravel road as they found the other items, he looked down in the ditch and found her scooter driver's license and her home keys. It seemed as if someone had been driving on that road, throwing out Lisa's belongings through the window as they drove. Lisa's family held on to the hope that it was Lisa who was trying to lead them in the right direction. But it could also mean that someone wanted to dump her stuff as quickly as possible. On Wednesday afternoon, the organization Missing People got involved, and they gathered about 900 people for the search effort between 4 and 10 p.m., the police increased the search area further south and east, and together with ten dog handlers and dogs, one police helicopter, and two rangers on horses, they covered the designated search area before the day was over. No further items belonging to Lisa were found on Wednesday, and they wrapped up for the day. A friend of Lisa's family was about to go home for the night after searching when he drove past the red barn across from the cafe. The police investigators had removed the crime scene tape and the friend wanted to know what it looked like inside. He took a flashlight out of the trunk of his car and he stepped into the barn. The ceiling was high and it smelled like dirt and old mold in there. He walked past a hole dug in the ground, where Lisa's glove was found earlier. He continued left through a door and entered a wide space where cows had been kept a long time ago. The concrete floor was covered with dust and straw, 
and there was debris and trash everywhere. He shined his flashlight on the floor and let the beam sweep across the debris. After only a couple of steps, he noticed something sparkling, and he focused his attention on the lit circle on the ground. It was a silver earring with a pearl in it. He picked it up and started scanning the area again. And there it was, another earring that looked exactly like the first one. After finding the two earrings, he realized that he needs to alert the police. The police came back to the barn, put up new crime scene tape, and started to go through the barn again, being more thorough this time. Despite their initial search with both dogs and forensic technicians, they missed the earrings in the barn. A detective later explained why. He said, The first search of the barn was focused on finding Lisa alive. But when her personal belongings were found by the side of the road, we needed to shift our focus. So we closed the investigation of the barn. The most important mission was to find Lisa. In hindsight, opening the barn to the public was a bad decision. But that was a decision that we made at that time. The police also involved the Swedish Criminal Profiling Group, GMP, on Wednesday. They quickly came to the conclusion that the perpetrator must be someone with insight into the local geography and with a connection to the barn somehow, since she had probably been in the barn and then moved from the barn to another location. The kidnapper must be someone who knows the area. On Thursday morning, they increased the search area starting from the cafe and 10 kilometers in all directions. 10 kilometers is about 6.2 miles. Over a thousand volunteers from missing people gathered in Blomberg and they scanned the large area together with the police and Lisa's friends and family. The police also conducted a second crime scene investigation of the Red Barn and a dog found human feces in one of the old gutters used by the cows back in the days. And the reason for this being so interesting for the police was something new to me. Apparently, when someone commits a violent crime, they can get so excited that they need to defecate right away. Some people even pee themselves during a crime. The profilers came to the conclusion that it is possible that the perpetrator may have had such an adrenaline rush that he needed to go to the bathroom. They sent the feces for DNA testing later that day. On Friday, five days after Lisa went missing, and what was supposed to be her last day of school before the summer, the students gathered for their ceremony, but everyone was really sad. In Bloomberg at the same time, the search for Lisa continued. Missing people volunteers had now reached Martorp, a farm about three kilometers or two miles south of the cafe. There are several buildings at Martorp, a main building, a large cow shed, and a garage. As the search party was about to spread out, a car drove up to them and two men got out. They only spoke English. 
The taller one of the two men said that this farm had already been searched by the military and the police. It would be a waste of time to spend any more time searching the farm. The leader of the search party didn't pay any attention to the two men, and they continued with their search anyway. The two men started aimlessly walking around the area, but left shortly thereafter. After another hour of searching the Martorp farm, they found something suspicious in a pile of branches behind the cowshed. Missing people is supposed to be helping the police, but not interfere in an investigation. So they called the police officer who would investigate what was hidden in the pile. It turned out that Lisa's helmet, her pink jacket, and her headphones were in there, buried under twigs and grass. The police called for more crime scene technicians because they realized that they had to do a thorough search of the rest of the Martorp farm. For example, that wooden trailer parked next to the pile where they found her belongings. At the same time as these items were found, the police were about to bring some people in for questioning. They drove up to the white stone house near the cafe where the English-speaking man had opened the door early that morning. At 8.18 p.m. on Friday night, two men and one woman were taken in to the police station. The two men were brothers and in their thirties. The older one was married to the woman. They had come to Sweden about two years earlier from Lithuania to work on a Martorp farm and the red barn by the cafe. But now back to the wooden trailer. It was an old worn-down trailer that didn't seem to be in use. There were high grass around it, but outside the door there were an area in which the grass were pushed down, as if something had been lying there. When the forensic team got closer, they could also see that some of the high grass had been caught in the door, so it must have been opened recently. When they opened the door to the trailer, they are met by a heavy smell. Something is definitely dead in there. The trailer had been used as a locker room. There was like a changing room with a wooden bench and a row of orange lockers. One door was open and the rest were closed. The open locker seemed to contain a lot of clothes, but what caught their eyes first was a large bench with a wooden lid, almost like a large box that you can also sit on. She has to be in there, they thought. But when they looked, the bench was empty. They continued by opening all the closed lockers, but they didn't find anything. And when they got to the open one, which they thought only contained clothes, they found her. Lisa was jammed in the narrow locker, with her knees bent and her head tilted forward.
Lisa had a bra and a t-shirt on her upper body, and her socks and shoes were on. But both her pants, the jeans and the sweatpants, and her panties were pulled down to her ankles, and her shirt and bra were pushed up. She had a piece of blue string tied around her neck, and duct tape around her head, covering both her mouth and nose. The coroner later said that death was due to strangulation, followed by hanging. The string was twisted around her neck, but not tied with knots. The duct tape was put on Lisa's face in three steps. First, two shorter pieces that were taped over her mouth, probably put there to silence her. And then a long piece that had been wrapped around her head, across her mouth and nose, and also down on her neck where the string was. The search was over. Lisa's family was informed that same night, and the police held a press conference on Saturday morning by the cafe where many people were still hanging out, waiting for answers. One police officer published a heartbreaking post on the Facebook page of the police department about the time they learned that Lisa had been found dead. I will read a piece of that post now. A large man whose back says police is shaking and crying behind an outhouse. A pale forensic investigator stares out in empty space and a dog handler has pressed his face into his dog's fur. The place is Blumbay and a moment ago we learned the sad news about Lisa. He continues, sending condolences to Lisa's loved ones feels so petty right now. I wish there was more I could do. A few years ago I met someone who lost his wife. He told me that it was so hard to get out of the house at first. He couldn't stand the fact that people's lives just continued, as if nothing had happened. He could not cope with the feeling that the whole world didn't stop in his sorrow. But in Lisa's case, all of Sweden really stopped. Everyone has been touched and paralyzed by this horrific tragedy. Everyone's wishes and prayers have been for Lisa to be found alive. She was not, which is deeply unfortunate. After the initial hearings of the three people that were now in custody, the court decided to place the two brothers under arrest for a suspicion of first-degree murder. Nerius Bilevicius was 35 years old and his younger brothers, Ivaras Bilevicius, was 31 years old. Nerius' wife, Irina, who was 34 years old, was also held on suspicion of protecting a criminal. 
They denied all charges and gave each other alibi by claiming that they were home together by the time of Lisa's disappearance. The woman had been cooking, the younger brother was sitting by the computer, and the older brother had been taking a nap. At eight o'clock, Nerius, the older brother, said he went to the gas station with Irina to buy pizza and cigarettes. The forensic investigators continued with their search of the red barn. In the far south end of the barn were three small rooms. To the southwest was a room used for slaughter before, and next to it was a milk room, and to the east was a small office. The office had a large window overlooking the entrance of the cafe across the street, the cafe that Lisa worked at. After examining the walls and the floor of all of these three rooms, they made some interesting findings. For example, at least 15 different stains of sperm were found on the walls of the office. It's easy to imagine that someone is standing there looking at the young girls working at the cafe while satisfying himself. The DNA of the sperm matched the older brother, Nerius. The human feces that were found earlier that week also turned out to be from the older brother. In the milk room where Lisa's earrings were found, there was a pipe sticking out from the wall about two meters or seven feet up. The whole room is very dusty, but the pipe is missing dust on top of it. It's like a piece of string has been wrapped around the pipe, removing the dust only where the string rested. A blood stain matching the older brother's DNA is also found on the pipe. And below, on the ground, is a piece of blue string that has Lisa's DNA and the older brother's DNA on it too. No evidence of any other person's DNA is found in the milk room. They also found a hair from Lisa that was on the floor, and one on the floor next to the pipe in the milk room. After two days, the police get the results back from Lisa's pink jacket that was found in the pile of twigs at the Martorp farm. The DNA on the jacket belongs to the older brother, Nerichus. When the detectives put the witness statement, DNA results and crime scene investigations together, they get a clear picture of what might have happened to Lisa that day. When she was about to leave the cafe on Sunday evening, the almost 20-year-older Nerichus pulled up in his car and started talking to her. Lisa had already put her helmet on, and she stepped off the scooter, maybe to give him directions. Based on testimony of the running woman, the police assumed that he asked Lisa for directions and maybe if he could show her the way on a map. Lisa, being the lovely young woman that she was, goes over to his car to help him. He probably put the two pieces of tape on her mouth right there to keep her silent as he is taking her to the barn. 
Somehow he manages to get Lisa in the milk room, where she won't stop screaming. So he takes out a piece of string, wraps it around her neck, and pulls it hard. She probably loses consciousness, and he then hangs her from the pipe. He pulls her pants and panties down to her ankles and watches her as she hangs there. The autopsy showed no signs of sexual assault, but the prosecutor still thinks the crime is sexually motivated. Given how much of his sperm was on the walls of the office, he must have fantasized about Lisa for some time before the murder. When Lisa stopped moving, he needed to make sure that she didn't wake up when he moved her to the Martorp farm. So he wrapped another four layers of duct tape around her head to be sure. After that, he put her in his car and he drove for eight minutes before he reached the Martorp farm and the trailer that she was later found in. While driving, he threw her personal belongings out the window, and when he pulled her out of the trunk, he hid her helmet and coat in a pile of twigs. At last, he jammed her into a locker and covered her with old clothes and the mat from the floor. It took him less than an hour to take the life of an innocent girl and destroy her family and her friends forever. When Nerichus was faced with the evidence of his DNA and blood on Lisa's clothes and body, he said nothing. He continued to claim his innocence throughout the interrogations and the trial. The younger brother, and also Nerichus' wife, left Sweden and went home to Lithuania after they were acquitted from all charges against them in mid-July of 2015. This wasn't the first time Nerichus had been a subject of an investigation. Nothing had ever been as serious as a murder before, though. Nerichus grew up with his parents and his younger brother, Aivas, in a small village in Lithuania. When he was 14 years old, he moved to his aunt's house to be closer to the school he was attending. He lived with his aunt and uncle for four years. He finished high school and went to the university, but he got his girlfriend pregnant and they got married. So Nerichus quit school and got a job doing construction work. The marriage didn't last long, and he didn't stay in touch with his child after the divorce. In 2005, he moved to England and stayed there for four years. In 2010, he met his current wife, Irina, and they decided to move to Sweden together. In 2014, he moved to Blomberg to work for Arne Jönsson, who owned the Martorp farm and the Red Barn, among several other buildings in the area. His brother joined the couple, and they all lived together in a white house. The police and prosecution prepared for the upcoming trial. They had the DNA from Nerichus on suspicious places, 
but his brother and wife gave him an alibi for the time between 6 and 8 p.m. when Lisa was abducted and killed. The detectives decided to make one last attempt on breaking the brother and the wife's loyalty to Nerichus. They went to Lithuania and questioned them for the last time. Irina continued to claim her husband's innocence, but when the police laid down all the evidence that they had gathered on Nerichus to his brother, he caved. When faced with this horrible act of violence committed by his own brother, he told the truth about the Sunday night. He said Nerichus came home at about 7.30 that night, very stressed out. His pants were dirty, and he had to put them in the washing machine immediately. When the police came by to take their DNA samples and asked them of their whereabouts on the night, Nerichus whispered to his brother, Tell them I was home by six o'clock. He says that his brother asked him to lie to the police because the police would probably suspect him right away because he was from a foreign country and so on. The younger brother really did believe that his brother were innocent until he was presented with all the evidence. After four months of investigation, the police had found evidence of Nerichus' DNA on the pieces of string of the murder scene and on ten different places on Lisa's clothes. They found his DNA on the inside of her panties and jeans. No other DNA but Nerichus and Lisa's own were found. He now had no alibi and he had tried to stop missing people from searching on the Martorp farm where Lisa was later found. Witnesses had also seen his car drive back and forth from the cafe to the Martorp farm between 7 and 7.30 on the night of Lisa's disappearance. In October, four months after the murder, the trial began. The wife and the brother were no longer suspects, and neither of them attended the trial. The prosecution claimed that Nerichus Bilevichus had forcefully taken Lisa with the intention of strangling and hanging her for his own sexual pleasure. It wasn't a rape gone out of control. He was convicted to life imprisonment and placed at Nortelje Anstalten, the prison in Sweden where most sexual offenders are held. And in February of 2017, he was, on his own request, moved to a Lithuanian prison to serve the rest of his sentence there. He still claims that he is innocent. Lisa's funeral was held on July 7th, a month after her murder, in Sartes Church, north of Hevda. The church could only seat 130 people, so they arranged to have large screens and seats outside the church building. Lisa's beautiful smiling face looked down at the crowd from the screens as everyone took their seats. The organist played Eric Clapton's 
Tears in Heaven before the music was replaced by Lisa's Spotify playlist. My thoughts go out to Lisa's family and to her friends. Rest in peace, Lisa. Thank you so much for listening to episode 28 of True Crime Sweden. And before we go over to the fun fact, I have a thing I want to address first. I've been approached by several advertisers who want to run their ads on my show. But no offer has been good enough to make it worth bringing in ads. For example... One company wanted to give me one pair of headphones in exchange for me talking about their company in the beginning and in the middle of an episode. No money, just a pair of headphones. Needless to say, I turned them down. My goal is to keep this podcast ad-free for as long as possible. A dream I have is to be able to cut down on my day job and have more time to put episodes out. Even though I have help writing episodes by Johanna, each episode take me about 20 to 25 hours to do. If you like what I'm doing and want to keep the show ad-free, it would be great if you would consider supporting True Crime Sweden on Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash truecrimesweden to check it out. Thank you in advance. And now over to today's fun fact. I thought it was time to talk a little bit about Greta Thunberg, or Greta, as her name is pronounced in English-spoken countries. Greta is a 16-year-old schoolgirl from Sweden, who on August 20th, 2018, started to strike for the climate outside the Swedish parliament. She sat there every day up until the election on September 9th. Since then, she has been striking on Fridays every week. Her goal is to get Swedish leaders and other leaders around the world to realize that we have to do something about the climate changes. And we have to do it now. Greta has been speaking on the United Nations Climate Change Meeting in December of 2008. She's been speaking in front of the leaders of the European Union. She starts one of her speeches with... I want you to act as if the house is on fire. And in one of her speeches, she also says, Some people are telling me to stop striking and go to school instead to study to become a climate scientist so that I can solve the climate crisis. But the climate crisis has already been solved. We already have all the facts and solutions. We just have to make laws and rules to make changes. Greta is burning for the climate. Her whole world circles around the climate. 
But who is she? Greta Tintin Eleonora Anman Thunberg was born on January 3rd, 2003, to parents Malena Anman, who is a talented opera singer, and Svante Thunberg, who is an actor, producer, and writer. Greta is a special young lady. She is diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. And if you read the definition of that diagnosis, it goes something like this. A person with Asperger's syndrome has a normal to high intelligence, a normal speech level, but a significant lower level when it comes to social ability. And a person with Asperger's also has to have very specific and intense interests. Greta's specific and intense interest is the climate. And it's kind of sad that it has to take a 16-year-old to get the world to finally listen. Greta was chosen by Time magazine to one of the most influential teenagers of 2018. And now in 2019... She is on the list of the hundred most influential people in the world. And this month, Greta Thunberg, 16 years old from Sweden, is on the cover of Time magazine. And there has been speculations about whether she flew to the U.S. to take a picture and do the interview. But no, Greta doesn't fly. Period. Instead, the photographer Helen van Meen from Netherlands made a pollution-free journey by train to Stockholm. And the same goes for the reporter Suyin Haynes, who wrote the piece on Greta. She took the train from London. I hope this doesn't sound condescending in any way. That is not my intention. But I am so proud of Greta and what she does. And we can all do something. Recycle. Walk to the store instead of driving sometimes. Cut down on the meat. Eat vegetarian food one or more days a week. Carpool. Use public transportation when possible. Go by train instead of flying. But even though we make changes for the better, it's important that the leaders in the world make sure that the industries and so on cut down on the pollution. That's where we can really make a change. So let's all start by making one small change a day for the environment. We can do this together. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope to see you next time. Goodbye. Hej då.